So turn over then, and we'll continue our exposition through Matthew's gospel. We're going to be talking about care, care in the body of Christ, what it means to care for one another in the church. But it begins really with this conversation in in this text that opens talking about greatness. What does it mean to be great? How would you know if someone's great? How would you ever know who is the greatest? C-SPAN recently released their results for the top 10 American presidents. And can you guess who got number one in this survey of the greatest presidents of all time? Who would you guess got number one? That's a good guess. Washington. He's close. He got second. Lincoln got first. And if you didn't guess Lincoln, you probably guessed Washington, though I heard some other guesses. I won't comment. (laughs) Here's how it unfolded after that. I think we can understand the top two especially. And then after this, uh, next were the Roosevelts, uh, Franklin first, followed by Theodore. Then you had Ike, and then you had Truman, Jefferson, Kennedy was number eight, Reagan was number nine, and then Obama rounded out the top ten. What do you think? Do these men represent the 10 greatest presidents of all time in our country. I mean, it really comes back to this. Well, what's the criteria? How are we determining who the greatest one was? What makes somebody great? Are we talking about name recognition? I think that certainly fits with this list of the top 10. Uh, Do we mean the most morally upstanding men? Does this mean who's the greatest president was the best leader? Those who accomplished the the most while they were in office? Or was it the one who provided the greatest or best vision of America? What was it? What is it that makes somebody a great? And according, according to who? Of course, this is where we shift and say, well, it doesn't really matter what the survey says. It doesn't really matter what Americans think, who is the greatest or who may not be. Because God one day will be the judge. He is the one that matters. What does God have to say about who is the greatest? That's the question we really should be asking. And frankly, we shouldn't be so concerned about ranking our presidents. The most germane question is, does God think I'm great? Am I greatest in His kingdom? How can you know? What's the criteria? That's what we find as we turn to Matthew 18 this morning. We see that greatness and the great irony of God's wisdom is found not as you get greater, but as you get lower and lesser. Greatness in Christ's community, in the church and in the kingdom of God, becomes by becoming small in your own estimation, not higher and elevated. Greatness comes by getting low in the way God works. And so then the takeaway for us from this text, as we look at Matthew 18, verses 1 to 14, is this. Think less of yourself, have a lower view of yourself, and care more for the church Care more for the church and the people of God like Christ cares for them. Get your eyes off you, in other words. Don't be so self-preoccupied and get your direction, your devotion, your outlook on others, especially those that he has called, especially the church. So we'll see that come out in these three exhortations for us. These three exhortations that are going to lead to greatness in his kingdom. These three exhortations that move to make us care in the community of God. And the first is this. If you're going to care for Christ's community, if you are going to become great in the kingdom, it begins like this. Humble yourself like a child. Go back in one sense to the beginning. Become, again, humble yourself like a child. Verses 1 to 4. And just even as we start with that, are you willing to do that? 
Are you willing to compare yourself to a child, to a little child, a dependent, little, needy child? Because this is crucial, because this is not only where care for the church begins, this is not only where greatness in the kingdom begins, but becoming like a child is where entrance into the kingdom of God begins. You don't go there, you don't get in the kingdom, you see. It begins with childlike humility. Now, no surprise, knowing the disciples, knowing ourselves, frankly, we, we discover that Jesus' followers, they have all of these concerns, and they happen to be, as we jump in here to Matthew 18, their concerns are worlds apart from childlike humility and service. Rather, we find them debating and asking Jesus, who's the greatest? Becoming like the Muhammad Ali of the disciples. The most exalted disciple. Who is the greatest one in your kingdom? So look at verse 1 now of Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I think hoping that he's going to turn and say, Well, of course you are. Now what prompted this question? Why are they asking it and why are they asking it now? Well, in the immediate context, if you remember from last time, the end of chapter 17, what did we see? We saw Peter pay the temple tax for Peter and for Jesus. And it was this miraculous provision. Jesus said, just go take a hook. You're going to find one fish. There's going to be enough to pay the temple tax for me, Jesus, and for you, Peter. I wonder if that story got out to the disciples. And they said something like, what do you mean Jesus paid your temple tax? He didn't pay my temple tax. What's going on here? Is Peter the greatest? Is that why he got this favor? Or what about James and John? I mean, they were with Peter when they saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain, though they were supposed to keep that a secret. They heard the very voice of the Father on the mountain. What's going on? The disciples are trying to figure out their place. They're trying to figure out where they belong in this ragtag group of disciples. They're they're figuring out the pecking order of the kingdom. And naturally, they have aspirations to, to climb the ladder if they can to climb the ladder of notoriety and influence. In other words, in their pride, they seem to be jealous. And so then frustrated and hurt for the ascension of one disciple means their humility at that expense. They're they're jockeying for kingdom positions. I mean, later on, James and John even get their mother involved. Hey, mom, go ask him a question for us, you know, that we can have the, the best seats in Jesus' kingdom. And trust me, when the disciples heard about that, the other disciples, they weren't too excited. Who is the greatest Jesus? Who pleases you most? Who got it right? Now, just as an aside before we move from here, because we're going to be critical about the disciples in this question, it's showing in their heart pride self-focus. But before we move on to that, you need to understand not all ambition is bad. Ambition is not inherently a bad thing. In 1 Timothy 3, elders are required to be ambitious. It says they aspire to a good work. They need to desire this work. Otherwise, you're not even fit for the office. Here's the point. Men, be ambitious, but to lead spiritually. Spiritually. 
Be ambitious, that means take initiative to direct others to Christ. Don't sit back passively waiting for someone to take the initiative for you. That's not your role as a man. Ambition is good. It's good to be ambitious for good things, for the spiritual benefit of your brothers and sisters. This is your calling. Now, to come right back to it, the challenge and common pitfall with leadership and authority comes to the question, well, why do you desire that? And indeed, this is what Jesus exposes next in his disciples. Verse 2, and calling to him a child, he put him, the boy, right in the midst of them. As they, disciples, are all debating about who's the greatest, who has the most significance, who's going to have the great authority when Jesus comes and makes this kingdom on earth, right? To all of that pride and self-focus and talk, Jesus pulls this little boy right in the middle of them. I have a picture that they're all just in this ring, and, and Jesus just sets the boy right in the middle, right in the midst, saying, look at this guy. Look at this little boy. This is the picture of true discipleship. This is a picture of greatness in my kingdom, not all of your discussions. Look at verse 3. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa! That's incredible. Especially when you think about who he's talking to. He's talking to his most intimate disciples. This is pretty incredible. And obviously this is pretty serious what Jesus has said here. He puts this child front and center to serve as this prime example of what discipleship looks like, what it looks like, what you must be to be a part of his kingdom. You must be this to even be a part. It's not optional. I mean, read it again, what it says. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You never will. You're just disqualified out of the gate. You're DQ'd out of the block. You can't be my disciple unless you become like this child. Which in light of what they're talking about, Jesus interjects here, you need to change course. You need to, it says turn. You've got to repent. You need to repent from this selfish, self-focused aspirations. You need to repent from this hunger for power and influence, this, this hunger for notoriety and position. And unless you set down that mentality, you will never be a part of my kingdom. Instead, you need to be a lot more like this little boy. You need to emulate this child. Well, in what way? How should we be like children? And it's obvious by the context he means in their humility, in their low status in a state, that they're, they're content there. Look at verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this might be shocking to us even still, but this would have been world-changing. It turns your mind upside down from the people of that culture in that time. Children in ancient cultures here were of little importance and significance. It wasn't merely, as we might say at times, that children should be seen and not heard but that they were really of no consequence. No one cared if they were around at all. Especially in Greek or Roman culture, they could be thrown away. Now, that wasn't the case in Jewish culture. In the Jewish culture, the family was important. Children were prized. 
They were seen as a gift of God. But even still, until you got older, say at least 13 years old, only then did you begin to have any standing. Did anyone maybe listen to something you would say? Did you have any kind of respect in the community? One Bible student framed it really well when he said this, quote, A child was a person of no importance in Jewish society, subject to the authority of his elders, not taken seriously except as a responsibility, one to be looked after, not one to be looked up to, end quote. And I think it's well said. But you know what? A child, a humble child, they don't begrudge that. They don't mind that a bit. They know their weakness. They know their neediness. They want their parents to care for them. They call for them. They don't lament being cared for and looked after by their mom and dad. And in that way, that's how they're quite humble. And this serves as, of course, just a profound contrast to the disciples who are all concerned, well, who's going to be on top? Who's going to be the greatest? Who's ascending in significance? You see, the disciples here, they're they're striving. They're they're earnestly looking to find their security, to find their significance in their position, in their standing in the kingdom, in the church, in the estimation of others. This is what they're concerned about. If people would just acknowledge me, if they would just recognize me and see my giftedness, my contribution, if maybe they'll give me that title, that office, that position, Then I'll know I'm accepted. Then I'll know I'm okay. Then I'll know I've made it. People look up to me. That'd be great. I'd love that. I need that. But Jesus turns everything around and actually turns everything right upside down and says, no. You want to be the greatest? You even just want to be part of my kingdom? You know how this comes? You go down, not up. You humble yourself. You stop jockeying for position. You stop always posturing, putting yourself forward. You stop always putting yourself in the best light. You need to stop focusing on you so much, frankly. It's far better to take the humble posture of a child, a dependent person who knows their weakness, knows their neediness, than in any way to pretend, oh, I got this. That's not one who's in the kingdom. And often in Scripture, Jesus will expand on this to say that the greatest among you, those who are the greatest in the church, they're not the smartest, they're not the most educated, those aren't the greatest. It's not those who are in the highest positions even. It's not those who think they have it all together, surely. It's not those who think they deserve something. It's not those who think they've earned a position, who have done the time, and so they think they are worth noting. Who's the greatest in Christ's kingdom? Who's the greatest in Jesus' estimation? Those are the humble, those trusting like dependent children. Well, what will they look like? How would you find them? How would you know who the greatest people are? You know who you need to look for? Look for those who serve. That's who the greatest are. They're not going to be concerned with status or position. You know what they're concerned about? They're concerned about others. Not others' estimation of them, but they're concerned about how others are doing. They're concerned about how can I help them love Jesus more? How can I encourage them to walk in the faith? How can I meet needs that they have? I see that they need care. How can I care for them? In other words, they're going to be servants. Later on, Jesus will say in Matthew 23, he'll talk again about who the greatest are. 
Matthew 23, 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The greatest will be your servant. Your humility and standing in the kingdom in Christ's estimation comes as you serve. As you turn your eyes away from you, as you turn your focus off from you, and you look to others. Again, not to what they think about you, but how you can help them, how you can help them walk after Jesus. And that could mean a whole host of things. It could mean just humble prayer for them. Go through your directory. Be praying for one another. Provide a meal. Lead a Bible study. Make a phone call and just pray with somebody over the phone. This is how you care, in part, spiritually for one another. And again, we don't do it to be recognized or respected. We do it just so people will love Christ more. And that's enough for us, whether anyone sees it or not. That's how it begins. That's how care in the community begins. That's how greatness in Christ's kingdom begins. You first humble yourself like a child. Next, keep others away from sin. Keep yourself also, of course, but yourself and others away from sin. Verses 5 to 9. So what should our humble concern for others look like? What is, and in the focus of this text, the primary good that we will do for others as we serve them? Well, here it is. Help others by keeping them away from sin. And that kind of care begins as we first really care for one another because we embrace one another. We receive one another as fellow full-fledged members of the family of God for all those who trust in Christ. Look at verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now we need to clarify terms here. What does Jesus mean by one such child? Is he speaking of a literal child, the one that stands before him? That is, has Jesus shifted on using children as an illustration to now speak about how you would care literally for children? Well, I don't think so, at least not here. Jesus isn't here teaching us about the importance of children's ministry and spiritual care for our kids, though that's very, very, very important, of course. If you want biblical testimony to that, you just flip over one page, look at Matthew 19, verse 14. Of course, this famous text, Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. You want to speak about the importance of EBS, and we do. We want to speak about the importance of discipling our kids in the Word. Oh, we do. We'll go to Matthew 19. The point of Matthew 18, though, is different. When he talks about one such child, he, again, is still picking up on this picture of a believer. It's a humble believer with childlike faith. That's the one who are we, to, we are to receive. And we are to receive anyone with this kind of faith. And we receive them fully as part of the family, even here, as you receive them. You receive them like you're receiving Jesus himself. I mean, that's astonishing. Again, verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. (laughs) That's amazing. So get this then. The way you treat, the way you think about other believers, that's actually how you're treating Jesus. That's how Jesus sees it. How you welcome or reject, how you judge or sympathize with, whether you gossip about or whether you give and serve other believers, 
Jesus sees you doing that to him. Are you encouraged by that thought? Or a little convicted? To think that your conduct, your thoughts towards fellow Christians, that's how Jesus sees me treating him? I mean, if Jesus showed up at your house in his human form, of course, not in his full transfiguration glory, but if he, if he showed up looking like he did in his full humanity, like he did when he walked on earth, and let's say he showed up at your door or he walked in the service just now, I mean, how would you treat him? What would you do for him? Would it be a little bit different than how you treat other believers in the faith? Maybe you'd give him your seat. So you sit here, this is a better spot. Or if he's at your home, you'd pull out the best of your cupboard or your fridge for him. I mean, what a privilege it would be, wouldn't it? To have Jesus come and knock on your door. Hi, I'm Jesus. Well, Jesus tells you here, you can do that. And it's how you welcome and receive your fellow believers. Welcome one another as you would welcome Christ himself. That's the positive side how we interact in the body, care in the community. Now he turns to the negative aspect of this, and that's where he spends most of his time in discussion here. In other words, he moves now to talk about how to not treat your fellow believers in Christ. Most of all, don't dare lead them into sin. He's serious about this. Look at verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me... So just note there, who's the little ones we're talking about? We're talking about believers... Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That would be better than tempting and causing a little believer to sin. If he lists those consequences as something so grave, if you cause somebody to sin, that must be horrific. Again, just to clarify, when he talks about these little ones, they're little believers. That is, they are believers. This is text is all about how we treat our fellow Christians, our fellow members of the church. And what must we not do for them or to them? The ESV, the ESV reads, we must not cause them to sin. More literally, the expression could be cause them to stumble. But even there, you know, we're talking about a metaphor, right? This isn't about literally you shouldn't go and tie your fellow believers' shoelaces together to see if they're going to fall over next when they stand up. Though as funny as humorous, that might be. This isn't what this is about. Of course, this is about spiritual stumbling blocks. You're getting in the way of their walk of faith. Spiritual traps and stumbling blocks that will trip you off, trip you up and cause your faith to fail cause you to stumble. You're moving them and tempting them to disobey Jesus. And that is something you must never do. Because if you did, if you were doing something to cause them to sin, to violate one of these little believers, to undermine their spiritual faith and walk, it would be better for you to take a millstone. That's this giant rock they used in the mill. It was the size of a grown person, very heavy. It would be better for you 
than tempting somebody. It would be better to put that around your neck and go see if you can swim in the middle of the ocean. That would be better than you dare, you dare tempting one of these to sin. Well, what do we venture from this? Well, first, Jesus takes sin very seriously. And he counts it as a very grave and serious matter if you make one of his precious believers sin. If you lead them away, if you foster sin in them. He even pronounces his own curse from God upon such seditious folks. Look at verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. In other words, in this broken world that we live in, it's filled with temptations, traps, opportunities, and enticements for sin. They're everywhere. They're everywhere you look. Of course, they're even within. And so woe to the world, because everywhere you look, there are temptations to sin. Nevertheless, just because a sinful world is this way and sin is everywhere, nevertheless, that gives no excuse, that gives no leniency for those who would tempt and lead others into such sins. No, sir, God's judgment will come gravely upon them. Be warned, be on guard, do not dare lead others to sin to disobey Jesus. To illustrate this further, that indeed sin is serious and it must be dealt with seriously, Jesus moves now and he reprises a teaching that he'd used earlier in his teaching ministry. If you remember on the Sermon on the Mount, he talked about cutting sinful temptations out of your life, whether that meant in a figure of speech, cutting off your hand or plucking out your eye, get it away from it, whatever you do, don't sin. And in the context of Matthew 5, he was dealing with personal sin and temptation. It was on the exhortation, do not look with lust for a woman. Cut that kind of temptation just entirely out of your life. He was dealing with very personal sin and desires of your own heart. But here, in Matthew 18, using the same figure, the context is quite different, isn't it? What's this larger context all been about? It's all been about your behavior within the community of believers. How you treat one another in the body of Christ. And with that in mind, hear that word picture in this context. Look at Matthew 18, verse 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands and two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Verse 9. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and to be thrown into the hell of fire. Think about this in view of that word picture that Jesus or that the Apostle Paul uses so often about the church. That he says that we are the body of Christ made up of many members. Such that if there are members of the body tempting you and enticing the congregation and the fellow members to sin, what must you do? You have to cut it off and put it away from you. Otherwise, it's going to lead all of us into hell, you see. You need to remove the temptations, the sinning, corrupting temptations away. You need to cut them off. 
Again, to show this is all about what's in the context here, just let your eyes drift down to verse 15. What's verses 15 to 17 all about? It's all about when your member sins, when your brother. And what are you supposed to do? He, He instructs us on how to deal with a brother who's in sin. And if he will not repent, look at the end of verse 17. What are you supposed to do with him? If he refuses to listen even to the church, their exhortations to repent, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is, he's no longer a member. You can't call him part of the spiritual family anymore. You've got to put him out and put him away. He's got to be removed from the fellowship. Why? Why is this so crucial? Well, there's many reasons. We'll get to that in the coming weeks, but it's the one that Jesus alludes to here. And it's the one that Paul makes explicit in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Why must that person be removed from the membership? Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Why would they have to be removed? Because their sinful infection is like gangrene that's going to spread and kill the whole body unless you chop it off and throw it away. It's going to endanger the spiritual life of the whole congregation. He ends it, Paul does in chapter 5, and says, Purge the evil person from among you. You must remove them. The toleration of their sin will infect and corrupt the faith and the testimony of the whole assembly. Such that out of care, that's the context here, out of care, care for the sinner even, that they know there's a problem, care for the rest of the body, The errant member has to be put out. To do so is part of what it means to care for the whole church and to keep others from sin. And even still, though Jesus here speaks about how we're to deal with sin in the community, the community of faith, I mean, there certainly remains many personal applications, right, in this metaphor. In other words, Sin cannot be tolerated. It has to be radically dealt with in your own life. Don't mess with sin. Don't dance with sin. Don't excuse sin. Don't try and justify sin in any way. Sin is there to kill you. It's trying to weigh your soul down to eternal hell. That's what sin's trying to do. Don't mess with it. Don't coddle it. Kill it. Cut it out of your life before it cuts off your life, you see. And cut that sin out of your life all the more, as we see in this context here, all the more because know this, dear brother or sister, realize your sin doesn't just affect and infect you. We're a community. We're a family. Your sin affects all of us. Even if you think, oh, this is a private thing. No one knows about this. But just as one sick or hurt body part cripples the whole body, Your toleration of sin cripples all of us. Whether it's by stealing your spiritual joy, and so then your fervency to serve the body, or by being, as we talked about, a corrupting influence that just lowers the spiritual temperature in the church, that just undermines holiness in the testimony of the church. Perhaps you don't see it now, but your playing with sin weakens everyone else. At the very least, when your sin finds you out and exposes you, it exposes all of us to the deception, the pain, and the mess that sin has made. 
for the love of Christ and his church, cut it out. That's how you care for the body. Third, we care for Christ's community as we prize and pursue others like Christ does. Verses 10 to 14. So to counterbalance perhaps what could be an extreme here of graceless judgmentalism, Jesus in his perfect wisdom continues teaching about what it means to interact in our community, the community of faith. And we must prize and pursue others just like Christ does. Indeed, that's what Jesus highlights first here with this great care and love and esteem for the people of God. Look at verse 10, Matthew 18. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, before we get all in the details of what in the world are these angels, just capture what is the main point? What's his main command? Do not despise these little ones. You have no right to hold in contempt to look down any of these little ones who believe in Jesus. Not one. And why is that? What's the basis of why we should esteem them so? Because they're perfect? Because they're always kind to us? Because they're sinless? Or maybe just because they like you? You get along? No. Why? What's the reason Jesus gives? Verse 10, For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Okay, hold on. What is this talking about? This sounds like guardian angel stuff. And we don't believe in that, right? Right? Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Let me say this. Whatever it means, the popular notions of a guardian angel, you know, that everybody has one, and they have this special name like Clarence, who's trying to get his wings before Christmas, always watching over you, protecting you, guiding you, uh, that's reading, you could say, a little too much into this text. Way too much. We have no such notion of that in Scripture. But we we do know from texts like Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, We read this, speaking of angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are to inherit salvation? In other words, believers. God has created angels actually to serve us, those who trust in Christ. Now, let this be clear. Even if God were to send an angel, some heavenly messenger to help you, God's got to get the glory for that, not some little special angel. We pray to God and we pray to Him alone for help. Not some lesser spiritual being, certainly not the saints in heaven. That's idolatry. We look to our God. Okay, but what's the point here? Why does He even mention these angelic servants who always see the face of my Father who is in heaven? What does that mean? Well, it means these believers have representative angels there before the presence of God, ready to do God's bidding, ready to serve God ultimately, but even to serve us whenever the Father would send them. They are right at His beck and call, right at His side, ready to go at the very moment the Father would send them. Okay, that's also very interesting. Why does Jesus talk about this? What does this have to do with not despising believers? Okay, well, think of it like this. That believer, that church member you have a rift with, That Christian that you'd be fine not to see this morning? That weak believer that you think you're better than? That weak believer that you're ashamed of? Know this, the Father's not ashamed of them. The Father has 
an angelic messenger at his hand, ready to serve them at any moment. He beckons them. Why? Because that Christian you have a hard time tolerating, let alone loving, the Father loves them. He loves that dear saint. Don't despise those that Christ loves. Okay. Well, what does that look like then? What would it mean to put this kind of care into action? And Jesus ventures out to the pastor, so to speak, to show us what it looks like. Let's look now, verses 12 and 13. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 in the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that went astray. Why does the shepherd go to such lengths? Why does he rejoice so much over this one lost sheep who's now safe? Why? Because he loves the sheep, all of them, even the wayward ones. And indeed, he goes after all his sheep with the cost of his life. He loves them all desperately so. He would do anything to have them. Didn't he prove this? Even Jesus himself in John 10 says, I'm the good shepherd. And I'm the good shepherd for all my sheep. And how do you know I'm the good shepherd? What does the good shepherd do? He came from heaven to die for those sheep. All of them. Every one of them. That's the love he has for you, dear believer. He died for you. He owns you. He bought you. He wanted to make sure you know you were his. This is our Christ. This is our shepherd. This is the care he has for those who believe. But not just for you but even for the wayward wandering sheep, even for the struggling sheep, even for those sheep that you find are very hard to love sheep, he loves them too. And so he calls us to love them like he does. And so that means when they go to stray, to love them, we call them and we carry them home if we can. Indeed, this is part of the responsibility of being a church member, being a fellow member of God's flock. We prize and and pursue the people of God, and we bring them home to keep them from spiritual danger. Why? Because he loves them so. That's what he wants for them, verse 14. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So church member. How do you embody that kind of care? How do you display that? Some members have wandered away into sin. And if so, I realize you're looking at that going, ah, that looks really hard. That's really challenging. I don't know. But isn't getting your hands dirty a little worth it? It's worth it to Christ. It's worth it to the Father. They don't want any harm or evil to come to any one of these sheep, even the ones you're having a hard time loving right now. Think of it this way. If you were wandering away, if you were being blinded, if you were being taken captive by sin, wouldn't you want people to come for you? Wouldn't you want people to hunt you down before it's too late? Don't let them run away from Christ without having to step by you first. And if you don't know, you're like, how do I even do that? What does that look like? Well, Lord willing, next week we'll see that. That's what he'll talk about in verses 15 and following.
But finally, now some have maybe wandered away and, and you don't know if they're in sin or not. You just haven't seen them. They're not here. You don't know where they went. I mean, COVID, lockdown, threats of the virus. It, it's made not being in fellowship and accountability easy to do and excusable. But perhaps some in that isolation, they're really discouraged. They might be thinking, do they even miss me? Do they even know I'm not there? Let's remind them God notices. God sees. We even see. And call on them. Call them home. I'd say your shepherds, the elders, we understand something of this. We're taking steps to follow through on this, as imperfect as it is. But this is not just a call to literal shepherds. It's a call to the body to shepherd one another as fellow sheep. And if you hesitate or object to that, is it because you think, well, Christ doesn't really care for that one? Or is it because you're just more focused on yourself? Understand this. Christ redeemed you fully. He died for you and redeemed you to the full. So you don't have to worry about you. You in that way can forget you. And this is the way he's equipping you to call the wanderers home. So let's pray for his strength to do that. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we need your help. We are so weak. Forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for the way we wander from your commands, even as we hear them. And strengthen us that we might faithfully follow after you. Follow after you as you pursue the wanderers and call them home. And keep us from sin. May we do nothing to endanger the spiritual life of your people. You love your people. You are earnest to protect your people. May we do the same and so for your glory. For we see that we are weak. We can't do this of our own. We need you. Help us, O Christ, we pray. Amen.